millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We live only one life, but literature allows us to experience others. I kind of love that idea. From my earliest childhood, I feel like my life has been expanded by all the different worlds and people and authors that I've come in contact with through reading. That world is shrinking for a lot of people today, especially students, as there is a tendency to want to ban books from some on the right and to cancel them for being politically inappropriate from some on the left. We consider this question, are culture wars endangering curiosity and learning, with Deborah Appleman. Life is hard. Life is tough. It's full of bumps and bruises. And one of the things that literature can do is to give you sort of a sense of the ways in which that's part of the human condition. You can't hide the hurt of life from young people. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? At our best, we engage with ideas that can cause us discomfort. But right now in America and in many other places too, free speech and free thinking are under assault from Puritans both on the right and the left. In this show, we're going to talk about why it's so important to really engage with even very problematic texts, why we need to push back on this idea that our society has become so fragile, so anxious, that we can't work through some of the challenges that this literature presents. Our guest is Deborah Appleman of Carleton College in Minnesota, a professor, a writer, a prison teacher. In short, a really interesting thinker. Her new book is Literature and the New Culture Wars. She joined us on How Do We Fix It a few days ago from St. Paul, Minnesota. And I think, Richard, I, both of us really enjoyed this conversation. Deborah, you wrote in a recent blog post, quote, These are particularly troubling times. We find ourselves in a bitterly divided country with ideological discourse at a feverish peak. Even the very foundations of our democracy seem threatened. Tell us more about what you're saying. 
I feel, first of all, we're kind of embroiled in um, a political ideological war. The way that people inhabit their positions seem much more vociferous right now, and in many ways, much more closed-minded. So it feels to me, even though I've been in education for more than four decades, it seems much more contentious than it's ever been before, and much more ideologically rigid. So that's a situation in which I think we find ourselves. You are teaching on a liberal college campus, perhaps one of the most intense kind of hothouse atmospheres for these kinds of disputes. In what ways does this recent threat to books and even the open discussion of ideas in our society today, how does that trouble you? It troubles me because I think it interferes with the potential of our students' education. In many ways, what we're doing is we're stifling and putting a ceiling on, to mix a metaphor, of what our students can discover and explore with us in our classrooms and outside of the classrooms. It seems like we enter into these intellectual conversations with some boundaries that are already drawn that weren't there before, that we need to be particularly careful, we need to be sensitive. And it it feels really expensive to step your foot into kind of a morass of unwokeness if you're a college professor in a place like mine. By expensive, you mean you might pay a high personal cost? I personally would not pay a high personal cost because I have the privilege and luxury of being a tenured professor. It's expensive and it's costly in an intellectual way because it means that we won't be delving together into the kinds of things that we should be. I think that silence is expensive. I think that being complicit is expensive. And it's particularly expensive for my friends and colleagues who are high school teachers and middle school teachers and don't have the luxury of the kind of layers of protection that I do. And most of all, I think it's expensive for our students because they're not going to be getting everything that they deserve from their education. Yeah, this isn't just something that is a problem with universities. We're seeing this at the school board and the local school level, aren't we? In in towns and cities and counties all across the country. Absolutely. I taught a senior seminar in educational studies in the spring called Madness and Mayhem that took a look at these culture wars. And I began with a montage of crazy school board meetings with people yelling and screaming at each other about everything from critical race theory to LBGTQ plus wars to all gender bathrooms to what gets taught and what doesn't get taught. And so it's like at a feverish pitch. And being a teacher is a really hard job. Working with young people every single day and doing the best you can is both exhilarating and exhausting. And to have that other layer of interference, which is not to say that parents don't have a right and a responsibility to be vigilant about the contours of their children's education, but the ways in which they've been empowered to interfere 
in a curricular way is something that's been very, very difficult for teachers on the front line to be able to negotiate. What's going on here? Is it that we live in a, in a fragile culture, in a time where people are more anxious and fearful than they used to be? One of the things that's happened is COVID. And the, I feel like everybody is in kind of a COVID hangover. We're both exhausted and worried, frightened, and we've been isolated from civic conversation. And we've forgotten how to have those civil conversations. And we see that through every age group and in every dimension um, with increased absenteeism, with people being a little bit more sensitive in the class classroom and with people being just a, a little touchier in some ways. But I also think that there are ways in which some of our political discourse over the last few years has become a little bit more nakedly <laughs> aggressive and that has implicitly given permission to maybe say things that they felt before. It almost seems as if our filters as a society are off. I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald said that the, the true sign of an intelligent mind is the ability to hold two opposed ideas together at the same time without going crazy. And I think that we've lost that ability. The heart of your book is a, an argument on behalf of reading works that might feel difficult for students, for their, the parents. There are words in some of these works of literature which, which we do not say in polite company anymore. There are portrayals of people that are unsettling. And uh, on the other side, there are aspects of some of these books that, that are unsettling to, to conservatives that are perhaps pushing certain boundaries farther than people are comfortable with. What are a couple of the common books that, that pop up a lot in these conversations? So on the liberal and progressive end, the common complaints sometimes deal with issues of language. So classic texts that use the N-word, like Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or To Kill a Mockingbird are on the hit list for that, um, as well as any books that might be perceived to portray marginalized folks in a demeaning way. What we've been doing is superimposing a 21st century lens on 17th, 18th, 19th, and even 20th century texts, expecting people to carry the kind of moral compass and uh, social conventions that we have now. So part of the objection can be about the authors themselves and whether they have violated a code of ethics and morality. So that's why, for example, people like Sherman Alexie and J.K. Rowling and Juno Diaz and even Elie Wiesel have been canceled um, because of things that they've said or things that they've done outside the world of the text, but that they have been rendered as unacceptable. So that's what's happening on the left. And that's a pretty new phenomenon in my experience as a literature teacher. What's happening on the right has been happening, you know, since the beginning of time, you know, that people feel that there's certain kinds of subject matters 
um, whether they're of an explicitly sexual nature or whether there's language, not the kind of uh, issues with N-word language, but language that might be perceived to be obscene that are not suitable for young people. And so there's also this kind of assumption from some people on the right about a causal relationship between what kids read and how they will behave that is absolutely fallacious. So if you read something that has an LGBTQ plus protagonist, some folks think, that's going to increase the chances that your child will make choices that they wouldn't have made without, you know, the experience of that book. I mean, as a literature lover, I would say, would that books were that powerful? Would that we could read things that would make us change who we are and how we are together? I mean, I've been wanting part of that all my life. Yes, let's be more empathetic. Let's be more loving. Let's be more tolerant. Let's be understanding. Uh, books don't really have that kind of power of conversion that have been given it uh, to them by the right. A couple of minutes ago, you mentioned the Native American writer Sherman Alexie. His books were highly praised, but more recently have been taken out of many libraries and removed from school curricula. You like his writing very much. So what happened in his case? What happened in his case is that he was accused by several women, including several Native women writers, of having exploited them in a variety of different ways, having exploited them sexually in relationships, having exploited them by promising a kind of mentorship that maybe didn't materialize, by having serial relationships with them. And he, of course, has been married for a long time. So his behavior was seen to be as misogynist, despicable, exploitive, etc. And I'm not going to say that that isn't true. But the things that I would like to say about that are number one, I don't know if it's true. Number two, I don't believe that I have the right to be the moral arbiter of his behavior. And number three, it has absolutely nothing to do with the literary merit of his work, or with the powerful responses to his work that I've seen both young people and other readers of all ages have. What if we applied that criteria of appropriate moral behavior to Picasso, to Wagner, to any number of writers, artists, composers, musicians. Something very similar happened in popular um, music um, to Ryan Adams, for example, he was a very popular singer-songwriter and was found to be kind of, you know, a jerk with women. And now his he's not selling any kind of records. John Mayer, too. So it's not just within the rarefied confines of the literature classroom that this is happening. In the case of Sherman Alexie, for example, what is lost when the work of an important writer is no longer taught to high school students? So I remember using his book when I was teaching at a school, a high school in Minneapolis with a large native population. 
and uh, a young woman whose name was Pine Funmaker. I'll never forget her name. It was just this beautiful native name came up to me and said, I've been waiting all my life to be able to read a book like this by someone who understands me and my culture because they're a part of it. Thank you. And that that is not an argument for simply slotting in another native writer, which people have been trying to do. They say, don't worry about Sherman Alexie. You can use Tommy Orange or any other number of people. But we never do that with white writers, do we? Do we say, oh, you have issues with Ernest Hemingway? Well, read Fitzgerald instead. It'll be the same thing. No, it's never the same thing. It's never the same thing because every author has a different voice and a different gift. I happen to believe that Sherman Alexie is, you know, an amazing, one of our best living American writers. And so what is lost is the opportunity for them to avail themselves of this incredible artistry, this mirror of their experiences that they can take a look at. And what I'm arguing is, why don't we let kids make that choice? In a recent uh, classroom that I was working in, we talked to students. We said, look, we've got these books, but there's been like a lot of conversation about this writer not being that great a person. And we want you to know about that. And we want us to do this kind of cost benefit analysis together about, you know, do you want to read this book? Do you find want to find another book? How much does it bother you? What's been happening is that the choice has been preempted. And I think that our students should be authorized to be able to make that choice. Another thing that is lost is, is like our open-mindedness and our willingness to sort of let people have other chances. You know, my incarcerated students, one of their favorite sayings is everyone's better than the worst they've ever done. And I think that's true for all of us. We're all better than the worst we've ever done. We're speaking with Deborah Appleman, and this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meg. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another reason that books sometimes get canceled falls under this category of of trigger warnings or trying to protect students from things that might be traumatic, upsetting. Perhaps people have some trauma in their own lives. And so, you know, having a scene of of rape or incest or or, or racism in a Mm -hmm. book might be too much for them to handle. 
And in a recent interview, you said, the purpose of reading is to unsettle you. It is to hurt you in some ways and is maybe, in my opinion, most importantly, giving you the opportunity to feel the hurt of other people. Are we overprotecting students and thereby depriving them of that opportunity to, to learn empathy for people who aren't like them? Absolutely. I want to say, first of all, that I believe that teachers like physicians have our own Hippocratic oath, right? First, do no harm. But I think that we've kind of overcorrected here and that our students are swathed in kind of a psychological bubble wrap that ends up making the ways that we want to teach literature nothing that really can work to penetrate it. I mean, Life is hard. Life is tough. It's full of bumps and bruises. And one of the things that literature can do is to give you sort of a sense of the ways in which that's part of the human condition. You can't hide the hurt of life from young people. And if you are an adult who is a teacher or works with young people in any capacity, part of your job is to shepherd them through this life that is full of thorns and full of challenges. And it feels to me that literature is is one way of doing it. We can't pretend that everything is okay because everything isn't. But literature becomes a safe haven where you can experience these difficult challenges that you're not directly implicated in. Literature is not life, but it may be in some ways be a preparation for some of the things that life has to offer us in a safe space. So what you're saying is, is that for teachers, doing no harm to their students is very different from not causing distress or discomfort. Uh, Richard, that is such an important point. Doing no harm does not mean causing discomfort, exactly, because learning requires cognitive dissonance. Learning requires that you are off balance, both psychologically and emotionally sometimes. And every developmental or cognitive theorist from Piaget on talks about the fact that it's in disequilibrium that we learn, because what we're trying to do is to achieve that balance. If you are never taken off balance, if everything that you read about and talk about and experience is within the concentric bubbles of your own current understanding, you're not going to learn a thing. One of the things that comes up with criticisms of literature in the curriculum from the right is the question of whether certain things are appropriate for for an age group. You know, a lot of people will use the term banned books uh, when they're mm -hmm. not talking about necessarily a ban. The book isn't being shredded, <laughs> you know, it's it's not right. it's not unavailable, but it might be appropriate in a ninth grade class but not a sixth grade class curriculum. Mm -hmm. Can you think of examples of where these these discussions aren't just intolerance, but they're actually worth having? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I really believe in the idea of kind of a developmental fit. I mean, in ways slightly different from what we're talking about right now. I was once hired by a 
a school district in Illinois to help them solve the problem of the fact that their eighth graders were not having a good time or understanding great expectations, you know, and they were willing to pay me a, like a lot of money to help them teach great expectations in a better way. And I said, I'm going to get on the next plane and you don't have to pay me any money. I'm just going to say to you, eighth graders should not be reading great expectations. It's not appropriate for them. So that's kind of a non-controversial example. And I guess what I think is we should use the reasonable person standard because an eighth grader in Detroit is really different from, you know, an eighth grader in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I think that one of the things that we have to think about are what are the contextual factors of a young person's life and what are they familiar with and what are they not familiar with and what is our level of comfort with teaching these things. I also think it is important to bring parents in before they come in an, as an angry mob to the school board meeting. I mean, I when I was a high school teacher, I used to teach ordinary people, which, you know, has adolescent suicide in it. And, you know, I would send a letter home to parents and say, hi, this is what we're going to be reading. And this is kind of what happens in it. And do you have any issues um, with your child reading this book? And it's sort of like by writing the letter, I never got complaints. When I didn't write the letter, I would get complaints, right? And it was about parents being able to feel like they were looped into the conversation. Jim was asking about whether some books should be taught to older children but perhaps not to younger kids. What about books that perhaps shouldn't be taught at all? What are the principles about this that should be considered by educators before deciding what to teach? What are the redemptive qualities of the text? Is there anything to learn from it that's kind of valuable? I think that violence for violence sake, you know, is just, there's just kind of like no place in it hatred for hatred's sake, hate speech and books where someone does something terrible and they completely get away from with it is maybe not the kind of, you know, moral instruction that we want to be having right now. I mean, things that are gratuitous, um, either sexually or violently. And then again, going to the developmental fit. So when someone is like pre pubescent, when someone is six, seven, eight, nine years old, you know, what are the kinds of things that they should be able to consume? What I want to do is to use my classroom as a space for being able to analyze that concept and its, its possible harm and or benefits, depending on what it is. Last night, I was reading a short story by Willa Cather, who I think is one of the great novelists of the 20th century. And in it, she had a depiction of a, char of a Jewish character that really fell into some kind of nasty Jewish stereotypes. If I was one of your students, how would you tell me to process that? What I would probably do in her case is to try to contextualize who she was, where she was, what she was writing, you know, what were some of the common attitudes, what they were going to encounter. I would pre-teach the sentence or the passage 
talk about it, trouble it in a way, say you're going to see this, we'll be talking about it afterwards, and just kind of ask them to think about the ways in which that reflects her worldview. People think of Shakespeare as being anti-Semitic because Shylock was a moneylender, but Jews could not own land. And so there were only so many things they could do. And there were a lot of people who were Jewish, who were moneylenders as a profession. So the fact that he was a moneylender, although that fits into a particular kind of trope that we have right now, was kind of not what he was doing, too. So, you know, literature is the mirror of human experience, and it is full of judgments about people, not just about who they are, but about what they are. And then probably right now, just because of everything that's going on with Twitter, I would just sort of talk about the danger of anti-Semitism and how it's just about the oldest hate and how it never goes away. You spent quite a few years teaching inmates in a high security prison, many of them serving very long uh, sentences. What did you learn from that that informs your work with students who are fortunate not to be behind bars? Um, I really appreciate that question, and I'm still doing it. I have a class tonight. Um, A couple of things. The power of forgiveness. I learned a long time ago as a beginning high school teacher that you needed to separate the child from the behavior, that what you needed to do if you wanted to correct someone who was acting out in class is that you didn't tell them that they were a bad boy or a bad girl, but that what it was, the behavior that they were engaging in was not desirable. So this kind of goes all the way to Sherman Alexi, separating the behavior from the person. Because, you know, Part of who we are is what we do, but that's not all of what we do. So good people do bad things. And that's one thing that I've learned because I've been working with a lot of good people who are behind bars. The other thing is that it's made me a little bit less tolerant of some of my privileged students' complaints. I'm like, seriously? Last night I was with people who live in like a six by eight cell and my tolerance for you saying that you're 15 minutes late because, you know, you live on the other side of campus at the farthest dorm has shrunk a little bit. You know, I love my students. They're amazing. They're not all from well-resourced schools or families. They're, you know, teaching at Carleton is like teaching Nirvana in many, many ways. But still, some of them are like birds in a gilded cage, right? And I want to say, Emily Dickinson writes, I measure every grief I see with analytic eyes. Sometimes I want them to say, you are living a life of such privilege that I wanted to mute your complaint. I'm not saying that what you're feeling isn't valuable, but let's have a comparative sense of how much of a problem this really is. And that kind of goes all the way back to a question that you asked me earlier, why read this, what's lost? Well, what's lost is learning about other lives. We only live one, but literature allows us to understand others. The power of language, both in reading and in writing for them, is completely transformative. They find reading to be like a privilege and a way in which they can inhabit other worlds, other universes, other spaces, and even come back and 
understand themselves. So teaching what I teach in that setting has just made me believe in it even more and believe in the, the resilience of the human spirit. Deborah Appleman, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My pleasure. Thank you. Wow. Well, I've just got goosebumps. I mean, we always, Deborah, yeah, like, beautiful. you know, we're always yeah. hoping to get a nice sort of resounding ending and, and you can't, you can't just dial it up. And that's very inspiring what you say. Oh, thanks. So for the recommendation, I'm sure you have some challenging, thorny piece of literature that we have to discuss in all of its controversial nature. <laughs> well, this isn't controversial and it's it's not incredibly intellectually challenging, but it is an enchanting novel about another place and a different time as seen through the eyes of a 17-year-old boy. I'm talking about This Is Happiness by Neil Williams. Uh, the, the theme, I guess, is that change is coming to a small parish on the west coast of Ireland, a place called Faha, and uh, it really is a lovely and, and wonderful book. It will fill you with happiness, I hope. Sounds like it's just your cup of tea, Richard. I guess I'm going to start this conversation, Jim, with a quote from James Baldwin. He said, You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. Baldwin writes, It was books that taught me the things that tormented me the most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or who have ever been alive. Uh, it's, it's that sense of wonder that you get from reading a really good fiction book that I think needs to be highlighted here, as well as the, 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 the debate over the enormous cost of both cancel culture and book bannings. Yeah, I was intrigued with her comment. She said that being that grappling with some of these topics in some settings can be, ex she used the term expensive. And I thought that that was a really neat way to see it. We've raised the cost for people to ask difficult questions or to grapple with difficult literature. And, and I think that we all agree that's a bad thing. And I don't think we should discount the degree of bravery it takes for an author like Deborah to raise these. You know, in my circles, the people who are afraid of cancel culture aren't the conservatives. They don't care. <laughs> you know, it's, it's my liberal friends, uh, especially people who work in institutions like universities who are find themselves anxious about crossing these invisible lines in, in conversation and other things. So to come out as a solid sort of centrist as she ha has done with this book actually kind of puts her in the firing line from both sides. And I think we need more people willing to do that today. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And Richard, you've got your music on in the background, I hear. We do this show on my end 
uh, a couple of doors down from Ricky Jordan, who uh, is the guitar instructor around here. And uh, right around the time that we're recording this, he has uh, a bunch of high school students and uh, they're... Uh, they're playing in a rock band. How do we so. fix it? Brought to you from the School of Rock. <laughs> That's right. It better than better than on my end, where where the show is brought to you from the land of leaf blowers. Yeah, and sometimes the occasional Amtrak train. Yes, absolutely. It's how do we fix it? Find out more about this episode in our show notes on howdowefixit.me. And if you like what we're doing here, please leave a review of How Do We Fix It wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The show is a production of Davies Content. Learn more about our consulting services for podcasts at daviescontent.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.